0: I don't want to talk about baseball. I might want to talk about what could be the biggest financial fraud in the history of the world. And mostly I want to talk about the story we tell ourselves about the story of money. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Gresham's Law and Tether. But first, here's a message. From our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette Chiu, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few, it's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future.
1: It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories.
0: I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. By the time you listen to this, it's entirely possible that the Tether scandal will have unfolded even more. But before we get there, let's talk about Honus Wagner. Honus Wagner, in some estimates, the greatest or second greatest or third greatest baseball player who ever played the game. Honus Wagner, who played shortstop, Bill James said, He was better than the second-best shortstop as much as the second-best shortstop was better than the 20th-best shortstop. Honus Wagner, probably up there with Babe Ruth. I don't know. I'm not that interested in baseball. But a tobacco company in the early 1900s decided that a superstar like Honus Wagner would make a great promotional spokesperson. So they made a couple hundred baseball cards, and one of them had his face on it. When they approached him through a representative, he said, I don't wanna be associated with any tobacco company promoting their stuff. Now, it's entirely possible he was just negotiating for a bigger payday. But whatever they would've paid him probably wouldn't have been enough because they balked, pun intended, at paying him more than they could afford. And so, there were only, as far as we know, 57, Honus Wagner baseball cards ever created, and they to this day remain some of the most valuable ever, one selling for well over $2 million. Moving at breakneck speed, the Honus Wagner baseball card moving forward to the year 2010, one of them is donated to the School Sisters of Notre Dame, an international federation of nuns that teach in Catholic schools. Well, the nuns decide not to speculate on the future value of a Honus Wagner baseball card and instead put it up for auction. Someone associated with the auction, perhaps Sister Virginia Muller, perhaps her brother wrote, although damaged, the value of this baseball card should increase exponentially throughout the 21st century. And so, as we start to shift our conversation to tether, the question begins with this. Does it matter that Honus Wagner is a good baseball player? Does it matter that Honus Wagner never authorized the baseball cards? What makes a Honus Wagner baseball card worth millions and millions of dollars? Now, in previous episodes, I've talked a little bit about the blockchain, which is a fascinating building component of our future. But I haven't spent a lot of time talking about the story around cryptocurrency, in particular, Bitcoin. As I record this, Bitcoin is all of it added up, is worth more than a trillion dollars. That makes the world's supply of Bitcoin worth more than every company in the world except for a couple, worth more than Google or Facebook, worth more than UPS or Federal Express, worth more than Ford or even Tesla. When you add it all up, even though Bitcoin is just some numbers on a digital ledger, it's worth more than than almost any company ever created. And people who are trading Bitcoin, some of them are money launderers, some of them are tax evaders, and some of them are avoiding prosecution for illicit trades. And yes, some of them are people like you who are simply honestly trying to speculate on what might be a tulip bubble or what might be the future. But that's not the point of this story either. The point of this story is Thomas Gresham's law that, bad money chases out good money. What does that even mean? What it means is if you can't tell if a coin or a bill is counterfeit, you are likely to want to engage in trade with any of the money. And so over time, more and more counterfeit money shows up and the good money stays secure in our homes where we can keep an eye on it. We're less likely to trade if we can't tell if it's good or bad, and so the stuff that gets traded tends to be bad. Now, if you are trading Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, or some other cleverly named cryptocurrency, you are speculating. It is not speculation to keep $100 under your mattress or $10,000 in your savings account. It is speculation to hold a cryptocurrency that goes up and down radically over time. When You are buying it, you are at risk. And then when you sell it, you need to put the money you got somewhere. And at the beginning, the place you put it was you cashed out your chips, like at the casino. You didn't hold on to the chips, you cashed them out, and you got cash, cash money, US dollars. At least where I live, US dollars is how the value of a cryptocurrency is measured. A Bitcoin is worth $50,000. So if you collect $50,000 in your cyber wallet, you can trade it for a Bitcoin. But in the United States and around the world, there are new sets of laws with the weird acronym KYC. The K doesn't stand for knife. It stands for know, know your customer. And the idea of these rules is simple. If you wanna be part of the banking system, banks need to know their customer. They need to be able to verify that the money is legit. And so if you're trading in and out of cryptocurrency, That takes a long time and it's a pain in the neck and a lot of paperwork. And the very sorts of people who are thriving trading in cryptocurrency don't like any of that bureaucratic stuff. So they needed a placeholder. And the placeholder is called Tether. Tether is a stable coin. It never goes up in value and it's never supposed to go down in value. One dollar, one Tether. That's what a stable coin is supposed to do. Anytime you want to, you can move all your cryptocurrency, all of your Ethereum, all of your Bitcoin into Tether, and it will be worth exactly the same amount tomorrow that it's worth today. There is no good economic reason to hold Tether. Tether is a way station. It's like pulling over when you're driving to Rochester and you pull over in Goshen to get gas and a hamburger, but you don't hang out there because it's a way station. And so, lots and lots of people who trade cryptocurrencies hold Tether in various amounts, sometimes a lot, sometimes none at all, in and out. But here's the thing all of the other cryptocurrencies live on the blockchain in the sense that you can see where they are, who made them, who's holding them, where they're going. They are open systems, but not Tether. Tether is controlled by some people with fairly odd backgrounds, including someone who was a minor character in a Disney movie called The Mighty Ducks, a plastic surgeon in Italy, and I could go on and on. The thing is, anytime they want to, they can make more Tether. And the last time I checked, 6% compared to Bitcoin is Tether. Tether has issued $60 billion worth of stable coins. And originally they promised that they would just hold billion in dollar bills waiting for anyone who has a tether to trade it in to get their dollar bills back. But of course, nobody who has tether ever shows up to trade it in for dollar bills for a couple of reasons. First of all, the minimum transaction is $100,000. But secondly, the purpose of tether is to trade, to trade in and to trade out, that the people who are at this casino never stop being at the casino. And if they are going to cash out, they're not going to cash out by trading their tether back to the tether people for dollar bills. They're going to finally turn whatever crypto they've got into actual reserves in an actual bank. As a result, the people at tether, and there's a long story in the background here, and I can't get into all the details, the people at tether have, in a sort of shadowy way, created their own printing press. Bad money chases out good. The chances that they have $60 billion in cash sitting in some banks are essentially zero. And so the New York State Attorney General and others have been investigating whether Tether is a little fraud, a big fraud, or no fraud at all. And when I first heard about this, I sort of freaked out because all bubbles burst, every single one, every time. And what would happen if the trading coin, the one that is 6% the size of Bitcoin, what if it turns out that it's just a straight up and up fraud? What if it turns out that the people who have been running Tether just print new Tether whenever they want to make another 100, 200 million dollars? Will that lead to a cascade effect that will puncture the bubble? And then that bubble, which has been propping up certain unstable parts of our economy, falls apart, and then we're all in really big trouble. Well, here I am before that happens trying to figure out what it means. On one hand, it's really easy to say, yep, this is a house of cards, and when tether is exposed, could be exposed, I have no knowledge of this, as a fraud, the whole thing falls apart. But the other thing that could happen, similar to the idea of Honus Wagner, is this. The people who have been trading in and out of Tether will simply trade in and out of something else. That if Tether is exposed as a fraud, instead of being worth a dollar, it'll be worth 90 cents and then 80 cents and 70 cents and then who knows what. And they'll just trade into a different stable coin, a stable coin that's more transparent. Because ultimately, money is a story. And if we believe the story, then money has value. The paper in a $20 bill is not worth $20. It's not even worth two cents. We take a $20 bill because we think it's worth $20 because we'll be able to trade it tomorrow. We pay extra for one kind of car or one kind of sweatshirt or one kind of service provider simply because we believe that the story we can tell ourselves and other people is worth more than it costs. And one more quick thing. Well, it's not quick, actually. It would take 400 hours to adequately explore. But one more quick thing. The United States, like many places, was on the gold standard for a long time. It meant that every piece of paper had a corresponding piece of gold in Fort Knox and other places. And perhaps if you showed up in the right place at the right time with the right piece of paper, you get a piece of gold in exchange. Well, the gold standard has all sorts of problems, and we might go into that in a future episode. But suffice it to say, we don't have a gold standard anymore. The piece of paper you have is simply a piece of paper. It is not an entitlement to a piece of gold. And yet, there is a law in the US that the debt limit, money borrowed by the government, must be raised periodically or else The United States defaults on its debt. This is crazy. There's no good reason to let a whole bunch of showboating congresspeople and senators decide once every couple years to hold the nation hostage to raise the debt limit when the debt limit itself is simply a fiction. But there's a loophole. There's a loophole that gets rid of this problem completely and what it involves is minting a couple coins out of platinum. I think they should make them really, really big, like the giant penny in Superman's Fortress of Solitude, a giant platinum coin 18 feet across, doesn't matter. But the denomination on this coin would be a trillion dollars. So no, you wouldn't be able to go to your bank and pick up one of these giant platinum coins. But if The treasury minted a few of these trillion dollar coins, suddenly there's no more issue of the debt limit. And the question is, is this any different than whether or not Tether is actually backed by currency or gold in some sort of vault? Well, it's a little different, but my understanding of macroeconomics is that if the United States said to the people it owes money to, we're tired of this crazy dance of waiting to the last minute of all the stuff back and forth threatening our credit rating. And you know what? We're good for it, and we're not going to have these votes anymore. I think the story of money would persist. And yes, count me in as a fan of the trillion-dollar coin. And we are surrounded all around us. Just look around wherever you are right this minute by stories that have created value. You don't need a story about brown rice and black beans. You need to eat them to live. You don't need a story about a roof over your head. You need one to survive. But once our basic needs have been taken care of, all we've got left is the value we assign to stories. And if a story is working, then we keep using it. The people who have been trading these mathematical formulas called cryptocurrencies are basically all sharing a story. A story about a binding curve, a story about things going up in value, a story about potential. When it's analyzed, like all stories, a lot of it isn't true. But if enough people believe the story, the story persists. The thing that brings pathos to this entire scenario is that these stories intersect with real life. That a senior citizen who needs money to survive doesn't want their retirement funds to be worth zero. That a young couple that needs to pay for health care doesn't want to say to their kid, we can't get health care because some bubble burst. Sooner or later, stories collide with the lives that we live. But along the way, it doesn't matter when a speed bump hits a story. If the story is strong enough and widely held enough, it will. Persist. So I don't know what's going to happen when tether comes untethered if it does. All I know is the ride has been bumpy before. It's going to be bumpy again. And we have to be really thoughtful about what story we're telling ourselves and why. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a question that'll get you thinking. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is the time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth,
1: my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is
0: Vasilis from Greece.
1: Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is...
0: And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Just one question this week, but it's a juicy one. Hi, Seth. This is Stuart from Perth, Western Australia. I have one two half questions that I'd love to hear your insights on. My first question is what is fairness? And then, do you think there is a universal definition of fairness that we could all ever agree to? And what are the implications of that answer? Cheers. This is a complicated question, and I'm wondering why it's complicated. When things that should be simple are complicated, one thing to look for are the words. Are we understanding the words? On any playground, Anywhere in the world, you will hear three-year-olds and six-year-olds arguing about what's fair. You will also hear people arguing about what's fair in governing bodies or places where commerce happens. What does it mean for something to be fair? In my town, when they used to have football, the kids, when they were 12 or 13 or 14 years old, if you weighed more than 100 pounds, you had to put two big Xs on the back of your helmet. Why? Because people with the two big X's on the back of their helmet weren't allowed to carry the ball. They weren't allowed to run the ball. They were only allowed to play defense because it had been found that big, heavy, tall kids caused the most injury when they were actually on offense running forward, that they weren't fast enough to cause injury when they were playing defense. And it's easy to say it's not fair. It's not fair That somebody just because they are genetically bigger, just because through no fault of their own, they are more advanced for their age when it comes to their physical being, aren't allowed to carry the ball. It's also could be said that it's not fair if you're a little kid that you have to worry about being completely trounced and perhaps injured by a big kid. Fairness keeps showing up in all sorts of corners of our economy and our world. And one of the reasons for it is the confusion, because I think there might be four kinds of fairness being discussed. One kind of fairness is the fairness of, we need to be treated the same. This is the fairness of, I just want your half. This is the fairness of one per customer, that as humans, we are entitled to be seen as humans. And when there is a limited resource, perhaps we should allocate it evenly. One of the challenges with that, though, is that it gets in the way of need. So even if fairness is top of mind for you, I hope we can agree that we have to make special accommodations for an infant, for someone who's elderly, for someone who is taking care of others, that treating everybody exactly the same ends up being a little bit of a waste because some people need more than others in lots of human endeavors. So we've got the idea of treating everyone the same, and then we've got the idea of giving people what they need. The third alternative, which flies in the face of both of those, is this complicated idea of giving people what they deserve. For example, we could say that certain athletic sporting events aren't fair. They're not fair because the fastest person wins. They're not fair because the best tennis player takes home way more money than the fourth best tennis player, even though the fourth best tennis player is supporting a big family and needs the money more than the single person who is winning. Well, we have built our entire culture around the mythology of deserving it, certainly, in a game like chess, it's pretty easy to say this person deserved to win because everybody had the same access to all the pieces. When the internet was young, it was supposed to be an egalitarian environment because you didn't need access to gatekeepers or a lot of money or most anything else to make your way online and to quote win. People got what they deserved, it became a haven for a sort of libertarian thinking. But what that leaves out is all the things that came before. What does it mean to deserve something when you are born on a First Peoples indigenous person's reservation without adequate schooling or nutrition compared to somebody who is born on the Upper East Side of Manhattan with fancy private schools? At what age is it actually a race? At what age do we say, okay, Starting now, you get what you deserve. If people have been indoctrinated into believing they can get something or can't get something, isn't that unfair when it comes to talking about what do people deserve? If a giant company defeats a small company because they have more access to resources, is that fair? Are they getting what they deserve, even if we can show that the product and the service from the small company is arguably better. And so as we go around this whole loop, the fourth one, the one that fits in with the other three is expectation. That when we play a game like Cosmic Encounter, one of the great board games ever, the very first move is everyone is given a different card and that card tells you how you can cheat. So this player is allowed to move pieces around when no one's looking and this player is allowed to steal other people's cards etc. Now, if these cards were handed out before a high-stakes poker game, it would be outrageous because that's not expected. It is expected that the cards will be randomly dealt. It is not expected that different people will be given different cheat codes. So more and more, when we talk about what is fair and what is not fair, what we're really having a conversation about is expectations. That expectations get built in by our culture, that for too long, people expected that folks who weren't traditionally from privileged backgrounds wouldn't be treated as well as folks who were. And so the outcry in the 50s or 60s or 70s about certain people being treated better as a matter of course was tiny compared to today. Because today, the expectation is shifting It's shifting and saying, wait a second, you're telling me that you want to reward people who get what they deserve, but people get what they deserve based on an unfair allocation to begin with. So how are we ever going to get to a place where there is a mutual understanding of what it means to be fair? Well, I think we can argue productively about whether we should treat people the same. So if you go to the movies, I hope that people understand that not everyone can sit in the best seat in the movie theater. So perhaps it's first come, first serve. Perhaps the best seats are reserved for people in a wheelchair, or people who have trouble with hearing or sight. Or perhaps we give those seats to the highest bidder, allowing people to pay more for something that's better to lower the price of the seats for people who don't want to pay more. But is it okay to give people a better seat on an airplane or at the movies simply because they were born with privilege? Because again, the expectation of fairness gets really complicated really fast. And that's why changing the rules is so challenging. Because when you change the rules, the first thing that happens is people who had an expectation for their sort of fairness, that they deserved it, will be upset because their expectation has been undone. But then you're establishing a new expectation, and that new expectation is around the new set of rules. So I know people who are in the professional biking world, and until very recently, it was expected that the only way you could win was by doping. That, in fact, the sport of bike racing, my friend told me, is... How far can you push doping before you get caught? That was the sport. And now there's a new set of rules. And so someone who has paid the price by being good at doping suddenly discovers that they're being disqualified because it's not fair to say that the only way you can win a high-level bike race is by cheating. And cheating itself is about expectations, all a long way of starting a conversation among your team, among the people you lead or manage, among the institutions that you work with. Talking about our expectations of fairness is a really good way to keep from disappointing people who deserve better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. but. When you're gonna show up? When you're gonna face that blank page, when you're gonna face the possibilities within you, when you're gonna face those fears. I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.